the jungle. Hey, everybody. We've got a different kind of episode for you today. We've got our first guest star ever, Mr. Julian Pace. And uh, it's going to be a little bit different than uh, our normal episodes. Um, it's about history. And Snitch and I have always been very interested in history. I love learning about old times and cultures and uh, how it can be applied to today and the lessons we can learn from it. Um, but uh, just know it is about Christian history. Um, we are both Christians, as we've said before on our episodes, and this is something that really interests us. So we want to do an episode about it. And y'all probably, whether you're Christians or not, should stick around and listen, because I'm sure there's something you can glean. Anyway, yes. without ado, I'm going to turn it over to Snitch. Uh, well, folks, we have a, a guest, um, as, as Dad stated, and he's a good friend of ours. And his name is Julian Edwin Pace IV. Uh, Julian has a Bachelor of Arts in Music. He has a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies. He is the current, he's the president of Risen Savior Ministries. He is the co-pastor or assistant pastor of Bloomingdale Alliance Church and is currently a doctorate student at Evangelical Seminary. Uh, folks, when I met Julian, he was just a wee lad. And a lot has happened since I've slept. So that's why we have him on board here today. And as Dad said, this is a little bit different than how we normally do. So as a season finale, we're going to wrap up with a guest. All right. So Julian, as he's been doing his doctoral studies, has learned a lot about the pietist movement in Germany. So uh, Julian, without any further ado, why don't you tell us about that chunk of uh, Christian history? Well, I... Um... What I would say about pietism, first of all, is that it's probably one of the most important Protestant revival movements that most Protestants have never heard of. Um, the pietist movement is going to influence the later evangelical revivalism of people like John Wesley, uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, and some of the other early um, evangelical revivalists that came of uh, that their ministries came of age during the, the Great Awakening in the 1700s and so forth. But um, as I said, pietism is probably one of the most important revival movements that most Protestants have never heard of. Um, just to give you a very quick, um, I guess just a very quick summation of the pietist movement, um, after the Protestant Reformation um, in Germany with the Lutheran Church, uh, firmly established um, in the north of, of Germany and with uh, Protestantism flourishing in many parts of Europe, um, it did not take long for decline to set in. Uh, one of the reasons why decline set in in the Lutheran Church is uh, the Lutheran Church went through the horrors of the Thirty Years' War, which um, affected most of Europe. And uh, Germany in particular was probably um, hurt more by this conflict than any other nation in continental Europe. And just to put it very, uh, very succinctly, very briefly, the Lutheran church that emerged from the 30 years war was extremely unhealthy, uh, extremely unhealthy. Um, piety and love of God at all levels of society, including amongst the clergy, uh, was at an all-time low. Um, uh, the church was uh, plagued by infighting. The church was plagued by open sin on part of almost all of its members. Church attendance was a low priority for almost everybody. 
many people were convinced that if I show up and take communion every once in a while, and if I give a little bit of money to the church, uh, if I just do a couple of nominally Christian things, then I have a good relationship with God. Well, in uh, the middle of the, uh, the middle of the 1600s comes along a ambitious and and bright um, pastor by the name of Philip Jacob Spainer, and he looks around at the Lutheran church that he dearly loves, and he is he's just um, he's disgusted by what he sees. He's he I really should say he's grieved by what he sees. And he dreams of the Lutheran church experiencing revival. And so what he does is he writes a book called the Pia Desideria. And um, uh, what we could translate that to in in our um, English language would be um, heartfelt desires, uh, God-pleasing desire uh, for, let's see, heartfelt desires for a God-pleasing reform in the church. And he's going to suggest several things to reform the Lutheran state church and bring some vibrancy back to the movement. Um, in Pia Desideria, he's going to suggest a couple of things. He, he says that thought should be given to a more extensive use of the word of God among us. Even though Luther, uh, Martin Luther, was very serious about all the people of God reading scripture and even though he published a Bible in German that uh, many of the people could read, most of the German people had not caught on, and they were not reading the Bible consistently. And so Spainer wanted to see um, a revival of Bible reading. He uh, thought that there should be the establishment and diligent exercise of the spiritual priesthood. So Spainer says that we've got to get everybody on board in ministry. It's not just the pastor's job to minister. He says the people must have impressed upon them and must accustom themselves to believing that it is by no means enough to have knowledge of the Christian faith, for Christianity consists rather of practice. Luther had in many ways reformed the doctrine of the church, but the life of the church had stagnated. He also writes that we must beware how we conduct ourselves in religious controversies with unbelievers and heretics. We must remind ourselves of our duty to the erring. So Spainer says theology is important and we can disagree about it. And sometimes we have to disagree, but when we do disagree, we got to disagree in love. He also says that both integrity of life and sound education, which includes spiritual development, be considered necessary when calling persons to pastors. So whenever we're training pastors, we don't just fill them with information. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're spiritually forming them. And then finally, Spainer says that sermons be so prepared by all that their purpose Faith and its fruits may be achieved in the hearers to the greatest possible degree. Uh, for Spainer, um, he knows that the preaching in the church was extremely ineffective. And so he wanted to see sermons, um, he wanted to see pastors preaching sermons that were actually of help to the people. Uh, the sermons during Spainer's day were really dry and academic. Frequently, pastors would spout off long um, soliloquies in, in Latin and in Greek and other languages that people couldn't understand. And so sermons were dry and boring and, and unhelpful. And, and, and Spainer says that pastors should be well studied and, and uh, they should be prepared, but, but their sermons have to have some relevancy to the people in the pew. And so um, Spainer's going to publish this book and gradually there's going to be a revival of Bible reading. There's going to be a revival of Bible study in small groups. Um, the pietists are going to be inspired to carry the gospel across the seas and 
Pietist Lutherans are going to be some of the first people to take the gospel to India and in other places around the world. And eventually the Pietist impulse will feed into evangelicalism, early evangelicalism um, that we see um, embodied in figures like Wesley and Whitfield and so forth. Really good stuff. Yeah, it is. It is. And so this is basically one of the first movements where the, the common priesthood idea the, that every believer uh, can take part in ministry really starts to take off. Is that correct? Yeah, it really is, because Luther very strongly believed in this idea. Um, he, he thought that it was a scriptural concept. Um, he wanted to see this, um, this doctrine of scripture applied in the church's life. However, we just don't really see that uh, really take place during Luther's life. Uh, part of that may very well be because when the Luther, uh, whenever the um, whenever the uh, the Reformation begins to take off, and um, people start reading the Bible for themselves, and um, they start wanting to take part in the ministry, not just ordained ministers and pastors and so forth, but lay people. They begin reading the Bible for themselves, and they begin uh, engaging in, in really active Christian ministry for the first time. Um, some really rather um, some really rather radical, and we would probably even say some unhelpful ideas are going to come out of that. And in many ways, they're going to start throwing out some babies with the bathwater. And so this is going to concern Luther, and he's going to clamp down, and he's going to lean more towards the end of his life on erring on the side of pastors need to do most of the directing of ministry, leading of ministry. Pastors need to uh, keep their people under control, so to speak. And so really, we're not going to see a revival of lay ministry in Luther's time. It's really going to be the pietists who are going to take that from the theory stage and apply it in reality to the church. So basically, as as lay people started getting involved in the church and such, and also um, I, I had read an article you had written that mentioned they were also very heavily interested in getting the scripture into lay people's hands and, and had a lot of good projects toward that as well during the Pietist movement. Um, and as that's all happening, we start to see the smaller, more localized bodies studying the word together. And it's not just like a clergy driven down kind of hierarchy anymore. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, the Pietists, um, they were first and foremost, I think, a, a Bible people. Mm -hmm. And um, just as, I think evangelicalism in its, in its, in its best form, um, just as I think evangelicals desire to be Bible people, the pietists, they desire to be Bible people. And the pietists, um, as the movement kind of reaches maturation and it grows and it expands, the pietists are going to found a, a university in Germany, um, in the uh, city of Halle, Germany, to be specific. And, um, they're going to found a university, and they're going to found a number of other charitable endeavors in the city, including an orphanage, a printing press, and uh, a, a, a medicinal dispensary, and so on and so forth. And uh, they're going to found many charitable efforts in the city, and it's going to kind of become the hub uh, for pietist activity in the world. Um, one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to say, we do not want poverty uh, to get in the way of anybody reading the Bible. And um, so what they're going to do at this printing press is they're going to heavily subsidize um, 
the cost of producing Bibles. And uh, sometimes they'll even sell them at a loss, these Bibles, just to get them into the hands uh, of the common person. But the pietists also said that if people aren't educated and, um, and they do not know how to read, well, then, then how are they ever going to read the Bible? How are they ever going to experience the truth of the Bible? So the pietists, they are actually going to be some of the first people to call for universal education. Um, if we want people to experience God's word, then they need to be able to read it. And so they're going to be, as I said, some of the first people to really strongly advocate for everybody receiving an education, uh, no matter uh, your um, no, no matter your your class status. Um, it, education should not just be a privilege of the wealthy few or the talented few. Everybody should receive an education. Everybody should know how to read. And um, the pietists, they really are um, going to take Bible study seriously, especially in small groups. Um, Spainer, you know, that book I mentioned earlier that he writes, the Pia Desideria, one of his suggestions is that pastors start small groups in their churches for the purpose of studying scripture and for people building one another up in the faith and encouraging one another in the faith. And so Spainer's going to really push this. And initially, he's going to prefer prefer that pastors lead these meeting meetings, but, but he's going to realize pretty quickly that this is, um, this is just not practical. And so uh, eventually what we're going to see is a lot of people who are not pastors, who are not ordained ministers, they begin leading these Bible studies. And throughout Germany, there's going to be just an explosion uh, of Bible reading and, and Bible study. And, um, and I think it's, I think in many ways it's going to improve the health of the Lutheran church. I think if you just look at the results, I think the pietists were in, were in some ways quite successful in bringing some life back to their church. I really do. You know, I, uh, as you were talking about Luther and his desires in his later days, so many things were, were so many synapses were firing off, but the one thing I thought of, you know, prior to the, um, to the, the, the reformation, and and his arrival on the scene, obviously, the um, much of Europe was under the, the the teachings of the Catholic Church, and and in one way, everybody was taught what the priests and the um, the other many priests and all the different names of <laughs> the other people that are are you know local um, teachers and so forth. I, I can't remember all the the, the proper Catholic names. Right. And so nobody interpreted the Bible on their own. They had somebody interpret it for them, and there was one standard general interpretation. So I don't agree with it, but there was a, a, a certain degree of stability there. And then suddenly Erasmus uh, shows up, and, 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 and as they say, he laid the egg that Luther hatched, and Luther shows up, and, and Zwingli and Calvin and all of these guys, Melanchthon, and suddenly everybody there's a priesthood of believers like the like the new testament says and everybody has authority to approach the throne of grace right right and while that is such an amazing amazing thing for for people to finally become aware of this hidden truth and suddenly you also the, the flip side of that is well now everybody's interpreting the bible <laughs> according to what they think god is speaking to them and um, so it, it also, I read the article that you, you, um, you wrote, and I right, saw some I, of that in there. Right. I'm sorry? 
the the one that I published in the Jaffrey Journal, the the Pietist. He, yeah, implications yes. for church ministry. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yes, that one that you published in that journal, and I saw some of that becoming like a an unintended consequence of. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and John now, and um, you also mentioned how there was a desire on the Pietist movement for for them wanting to have everybody to have a copy of the word of God and for everybody to be able to read the scriptures. It reminded me of uh, something John Hus said. Mm-hmm. He, he said that I can't remember the, the plow, but he wanted like the boy that pushed the plow to have access to the, to the word of God. And, and right. uh, he was, he was Dutch and I don't know what, at what point in the timeline he showed up is he's, is he in that, in that talking area about, we talking about john H- uh, uh, huss are you talking about huss? huss yes yes so yeah yes. huss is um huss is actually bohemian and oh. um so he comes uh from the from the center uh more from the center of europe um from what is now i think okay. Czechoslovakia and so forth huss is actually going to be a good deal before the pietists and okay but again you know the pietists they're coming out of the the, the, you know, they're children of the Reformation. And so just as Huss desired that everybody have access to the Bible, Luther, the same, Calvin, uh, Bucer, all these major, Zwingli, all these major reformers, uh, the Pietists, they're very much children of the Reformation. And I think for them, their desire was, let's actually, let's actually make this a reality because it had been a desire on the part of the early reformers but it hadn't really become a reality yet. And so I think that's kind of what they were trying to do. Another observation is, um, yeah, and, and I appreciate you clarifying that. So for the Piesists, they were almost different streams, same source, but different streams. The uh, uh, Hus and, and people like him, Knox and so forth, they were not necessarily a result of the Re- Reformation. They were a separate stream that kind of can be traced uh, back through a different cha- uh, uh, channel, but since we're focusing on this on this uh, stream from the Reformation, um, um, the other thing I, I thought about too was um, you mentioned how this um, this stream or this thought process had an impact on the subsequent well big names that we know about, like um, you mentioned um, Whitfield and you mentioned the Wesley brothers and the movement that kind of spilled over into America not very long after this movement. Am I correct in that? Pietism, Pietism is definitely going to feed into later um, evangelical revivalism. I've actually done in the course of my doctoral work, specifically some research on how the Pietists, how they actually influenced John Wesley in some important ways. So I think it's kind of neat that you, um, I think it's kind of neat that you just mentioned Huss and how we were just talking about John Huss, he's going to start a, um, a Reformation movement kind of prior to the Lutheran Reformation. Um, he's going to start a reform movement in Europe that's going to come to be known as the Unitas Fratrum. And um, the, the Hussite Brethren is another name for them. And they're kind of a, a proto-Protestant or an early Protestant church, if you will. And they, they come before Lutheran Calvin. But that group is going to endure throughout the Reformation, and they're going to experience severe, um, severe persecution from Catholic authorities in the Thirty Years' War that just ravages Europe. Well, um, a, a pietist, a Lutheran pietist by the name of uh, 
Count Zinzendorf, he's going to hear about these people who are being persecuted um, by the uh, Catholic authorities in their native country, and he's going to invite them to live on his German estates. And um, this group is going to come to be more commonly known as the Moravians. And through Zinzendorf, this whole group, this, uh, this whole movement, the United Fratrum that was originally started by Huss, they're going to catch the pietist bug. And um, they're going to be very serious about Bible reading and Bible reading in small groups and encouraging one another in Christian practice in small groups. And they're going to become very interested in missions. Well, um, John Wesley on his way to uh, America, John Wesley is an Anglican priest, and um, he's been assigned to actually do some ministry in Savannah, Georgia. And on the way to Georgia from England, he uh, is accompanied by a group of about 30 pietists, uh, Moravian pietists specifically. And John Wesley is going to be impressed by the faith of these people. John West Wesley by now is in, in an intense, intense crisis of faith. Um, he knows his doctrine. He's an ordained Anglican priest, but he doubts whether he's really in God's family. He doubts whether he's really saved. And he just marvels at the vibrant faith of these people. And he begins to experience what it's like to study scripture with them and to uh, specifically study scripture in small groups with them. And he loves their hymnody and he loves their vibrant worship. One of the things that Spainer longed for um, whenever he looked upon the dead Lutheran churches, he said, there needs to be some life in the worship here. And so John Wesley looks on these pietists, these Moravian pietists, and what they have, he wants it. He wants it bad. And um, he's going to have a disastrous ministry in Georgia. And he's only going to be there about a year and a half, two years or so. And then he's going to be back on the boat headed to England. But he immediately attaches himself to some um, Moravian pietists who are living in London. Um, and um, he's going to continue to attend Bible studies with these people um, at the Fetter Lane Society um, in, in Aldersgate, London, a borough of London. And um, it is with these Moravian pietists that John Wesley is going to experience conversion and he says, you know, uh, they were reading Luther's preface to Romans. And basically what Wesley's going to say is, I I'm going to recognize that, that Christ didn't just die for the sins of all people, but he died specifically for my sins. And Christ had saved me and he was my savior. And of course, I'm paraphrasing somewhat here. But then he says, I felt my heart was strangely warmed. So he felt the presence of God just fill his life. And so what we see is that the pietists, they really played a major role in Wesley's spiritual formation and in bringing him into the faith. Wesley is going to adopt um, the pietist practice of meeting together for scripture study and spiritual edification in small groups. He's going to see this with the Moravians. He really likes it. He thinks it will, um, he thinks it will be a benefit and use to the uh, Methodist movement that he's just beginning. And he's going to apply this um, to, um, he's going to apply this to his Methodist program. I think one of the biggest things that Wesley gets from the, uh, the pietists is that doctrine is extremely important. It is, we don't want to minimize the importance of Christian doctrine, but the Christian life is more than just a head knowledge of the 
the doctrines of the faith. It's more than that. Christianity is not just theology, though theology is important. Christianity is a life. Christianity is a life lived, informed by the Bible and what it teaches and by the Christian tradition and by Christian doctrine. Christianity is not just a set of ideas. It is a way of living, and it uh, provides for us a path to connection to God and holiness um, in God's sight. And so I think we especially see the Pietist revival feeding into Wesley's later Methodist revival and, and the other evangelical revivals. That's some, uh, that's some amazing stuff. I've studied a good bit about John Wesley, and I, I did not know a lot of that. <laughs> I, I tell you, it's really remarkable, Dad, because um, I've often said pietism is the, is the most unknown, one of the most important, but one of the most unknown revival movements in the history of, of Christianity, specifically Protestant Christianity. I think that's because pietism in many circles gets a very bad name. Um, pietism in, in many circles, many Protestant theologians, I think have misunderstood and misinterpreted the movement and not really studied it very closely, and that they've associated it with a kind of an otherworldly legalism. Um, they have associated with it a, uh, with it a kind of detachment from the world and the world's problems just to focus on individual holiness. They have associated with um, a lack of concern for doctrine, even though um, Spainer is theologically orthodox and is, um, is, is going to articulate that, that Christian doctrine is vitally important. And I think where some of these um, misconceptions about pietism come from it comes from the minority and the radical wing of the Pietist Church that kind of um, Snitch talked about just a little bit that there were some Pietists who are going to begin reading the Bible for themselves, and they're going to read it in isolation from the Christian tradition. They're going to read it in isolation from the great creeds uh, of the Christian Church, and they're going to come away with some really wacky ideas. Yeah. And so I think because of that, um, people have looked on Pietism less than fondly. But I think if we look at the very best that pietism has to offer, it was um, in many ways a, a very laudable movement that we can admire many aspects of it. And whether we like it or not, if you consider yourself an evangelical, um, if you are a lover of, of Wesley or Whitfield or Edwards, um, it's in your DNA. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and and also the point previously that you stated that if we looked at the best, if we look at the best of what it has to offer, then we won't be, um, won't have to worry about being hijacked by, by the excesses. Uh, for right. instance, yeah, for for instance, as you stated, well, of course, the Methodism is called Methodism because of the methods that were so popular, and a lot of people looked at that, as you said like a well this isn't a lot of legal things we have to wake up at four we have to you know pray and study for you know x amount of hours before we start our day uh wesley and charles they had a lot of things in their in their holy club that that a lot of maybe <laughs> uh today's christians would balk at but mm -hmm. look at look at what they spawn and i guess the other negative thing as you were saying people have misconceptions if you want to look at the negative you can always find it and you will definitely find that the holiness uh, movement is a direct descendant of the anti-intellectualism intellectual, part of it. And 
it, it became something that would, would in some in some groups be considered excesses and aberrations but to your point we don't have to look at the excesses you don't have to look at the the failures in christianity um you could look at all of the the good things that it has it has brought to the world in other words you don't reject it based on the abuses of those who have abused it right Right. So, yeah. And, and, and I, I fully, I fully um, see that. Um, and uh, speaking of Wesley, I also recently learned that he was Oglethorpe's secretary. And so that kind of, as you were saying, Ed, you know, there's so much that, yeah, we, we didn't know he was, he was, that was his, one of his, like his secular job while he was doing the other thing. Well, no, and, yeah, well, and to make that point about like some of the good things that Christianity has done, whether you're Christian or not, as uh, uh, Julian was talking about a little while ago, he was talking about how the they wanted all the people to be able to read so they could read the Bible. Um, U.S. history, also our public school systems spawned from programs in places like Massachusetts that were spawned for the exact same reason. It was Christians wanting to teach lay people how to read so that they could read the Bible. Yeah, I, one of the things I would love to point out about the um, the Pietists is frequently the Pietists have been um, confused um, with the Catholic Quietists, which was a spiritual movement later condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. But the Quietists, um, I think, because of the, just the, the similar sounding names, people have confused and conflated Pietism with with Quietism, which Quietism says that. You withdraw from the world and you wait on God to reveal himself to you via mystical experience. And um, I think for that reason, because people have conflated these two, they've said that pietism is, is otherworldly. It has no concern for the world. It's very much a individualistic. Um, uh, it's very much an individualistic spirituality that just focuses on individual holiness at the expense of the world and one of the things that I love about the pietists is I think they care deeply about their culture. And I think they care deeply about correcting the social ills uh, of their culture. After the 30 years war, uh, the social and the cultural fabric uh, of Germany was just, was just torn to bits. And um, the, the pietists encountered uh, a culture that uh, had just a tremendous number of orphans, uh, widows, uh, people that were just literally begging um, just to get by. Um, and, and, and also many, many people who had absolutely no education and had absolutely no way of, um, had absolutely no way of, of learning any skills to better themselves. And so the pietists are gonna be profoundly, profoundly interested in um, correcting some of the ills of their culture, helping people learn to read, housing orphans. The pietists are not just gonna found an orphan in Hala. All over Europe, people are gonna be inspired by the pietists to found orphanages and so forth. The pietists are gonna found homes for widows where they can go into these homes and have a roof over their head and have good food and they can work and they can support the church and they're not on the street um, begging for a living. Uh, the pietists are also going to be um, dispensers of medicine for the, um, the sick of Europe and India and uh, America at little to no charge. They're going to start a, um, a apothecary, a, a pharmacy, if you will. And um, the pietists are going to be very serious about 
um, about helping people who are, who are sick and ill and need medical care. Uh, back in the day, it was not uncommon for many communities, particularly in America, as America is just being settled, it was not uncommon for there not to be a doctor for hundreds of miles. And so at the University of Halle, they're actually going to train many pastors in basic, um, in basic medicine. Um, so whenever they're out ministering, if people have uh, basic ailments, they can, uh, they can treat these ailments. And Halle is going to supply their missionaries around the world with medicines that they're going to dispense to the people, little to no charge. And so I, I really do think pietism has been mischaracterized. And I think it was a thoroughly biblical movement. And I think also it was a movement that was thoroughly concerned with, with helping others and the less fortunate. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Julian. Looking at the article you published in the journal Jaffray, mm -hmm. um, you made um, some, ref obviously this is a 17th century spiritual movement, mm -hmm. but you did some correlation to the day and time that we live mm -hmm. and the spiritual condition and uh, world happenings that are that are taking place in our time, specifically the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. And would you speak on that a little bit for those who are listening? Yeah, I, I would love to. Um, I, as you mentioned, uh, Snitch, I, I recently published an article um, in a journal. And, and basically what it's, what it's trying to do is apply some of the best, I think, ministry practices and techniques that the pietists took up to our day. Um, as we begin to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and as the church reels from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I think what's very interesting is um, it's not uncommon that when warfare takes place for disease to spread as well. And um, during the 30 years war that the Lutheran church emerged from and Germany emerged from, and eventually the, the pietist movement is going to respond to and, and, and try and ameliorate some of the ills of that, that conflict. Um, a great plague is actually going to accompany the 30 years war. So a lot of people are not only going to die from the conflict, but they're going to die from the plague. And so the pietists had vivid uh, memories and had vivid experiences um, with seeing people that they love dearly fall to sickness. And um, again, the church was in disarray and in many ways, um, as I look at the, uh, the American church in particular, I think the church is, um, I think, a great deal more vibrant in, in, in parts of South America and is growing in parts of Africa. It's really exploding in parts of Africa and Southeast Asia. But, but particularly in, in America, I, I feel that the American church is in desperate need of revival, and I think it's in a mess. Um, uh, I think just to name a few of our problems, I think that um, a lot of people have more love for the red, white, and blue than they do for Jesus. I think many churches are eaten up by Christian nationalism. I think that many of our churches um, do not have good spiritual formation. Um, I think many of our churches have focused so much on getting people to make a profession of faith, they've forgotten to disciple people. Um, there's so much emphasis on uh, getting people through the doors and getting them to say a prayer and um, keeping them entertained, there's really not much room in there for discipleship. 
And um, one of the things that I think um, we need to lean on, one of the things I think that we can um, take a page from the pietists is we need to emphasize more so spiritual formation, particularly spiritual formation in small groups. I believe very strongly that before the church grows larger and more vibrant, it's got to grow spiritually deeper. I think the pietists understood that. Um, I think Philip, uh, Philip Spainer, writing the Pia Desideria, he understands that his goal is not just to get butts in the pews. His goal is to get people studying God's, words, God's word again, um, learning from it, being spiritually formed by it, uh, loving it, particularly in small groups where error and excesses can hopefully be curbed some. And um, I think we need to take a page from this, that we need to focus um, not so much on not so much on large group gatherings with all the pizzazz and all the show that we see in so many churches. But I think we need to focus on what happens to people whenever they read the Bible together in small groups, 15, 20, and they discuss it together and they discuss theology together and they discuss how do we live out um, God's call to us in a practical way in our culture. Again, I want to emphasize that as I mentioned just a few moments earlier, I think before the church grows numerically larger and more vibrant, it's got to grow spiritually deeper. And the beautiful thing about small groups is in many parts of the world, um, the COVID-19 pandemic is still raging. Large gatherings are a no-no. Um, we can begin doing this right now. And so I, I would like to see us apply the very best of what the pietists have to offer. And I do believe that God can bless these methods. I think these methods are tried and true. And I think that um, I think that the COVID-19 pandemic may very well end up being the thing that God used to make the church more vibrant. I hope that the COVID-19 pandemic forces us to ask what's really important. And I'm spe speaking really specifically here to the American church. What is really important and what sins do we need to repent of? What things do we need to set aside so we can get back on mission and so we can be healthier than we have been very recently? I completely agree. I, I love that part of the article because I love taking history and applying it. Um, mm -hmm. History doesn't do you much good if you just learn dates and names and things. It's learning that's right. from it that's, uh, that's the most important thing. Um, and, and I agree. I mean, if you read the New Testament, um, while there were big preaching sermons like uh, the day of Pentecost and uh, Christ would preach to many people, but a lot of the actual spiritual growth and things that happened when it was just uh, when Christ was just talking to his apostles or the small gatherings in cities during the days of uh, Paul and, and uh, some of the early, you know, uh, missionaries that were sent out from the church. And uh, much of that was done one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. And that, that's how the church originally started. Yeah, I, I think so. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, Dad. That's a really good point because one of the things that Spainer is going to say in that Pia Desideria that, that he wrote, giving those um, suggestions, those proposals for renewing the Lutheran church, is he says, we need to revive, um, and I believe he says, the ancient and apostolic um, kind of, uh, of meetings. And what he's talking about are when uh, the church would gather in small groups to, to discuss the, 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 um, the apostles preaching together and their teaching uh, together. 
And uh, again, the, the pietists are not going to be against um, large group gatherings. Pa- Spainer believes uh, very much in the power of preaching, and he's not going to abandon the established church. So he's not against large gatherings, but he says we should not emphasize large gatherings while um, at the expense of small gatherings and Christians gathering together in groups of maybe 10, 15, or 20 to study God's word together and really get um, into um, the nitty gritty of what it means to be uh, a holy Christian. Oh, yes. And in smaller groups, you also have more accountability. You have more attentiveness to the individual and their needs, you know, um, especially when, as you were talking about during discipleship and such. If you go listen to one big sermon that's being directed to, you know, three, four, five hundred people, the pastor doesn't have time to just sit down and talk to you about every question you have about that passage of scripture that he was right. he was talking about. But in a small gathering where you can bounce ideas off of each other, as the scripture says, iron sharpeneth iron. That's um, right. I, I, I completely agree. I think there is a place for both. But but yeah, the real spiritual growth, at least in my life, generally happens in small settings. I have learned many, many things from standard church uh, meetings as well. But uh, that one on one or five, 10, 15 people just discussing a passage of scripture, you, you learn a lot. Right. Right. I think it's it. Um, there's a couple, several things going on, but I'll focus on, try to focus on one or two of them. In the 1970s, I don't know exactly when, maybe there were germs of it that, that occurred in the 60s, but there was a, a desire on the, the Western church, particularly the American church, for church growth. The Sunday school was, was uh, like, became a necessary thing. It, you know, it, we, a lot of people think Sunday school was, you know, existed back in the times of G, uh, the apostles, but no, it's, it's literally a, an American invention. And um, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it started in, on the other side of the pond before it came over here. But anyway, my point is, right in, in the 70s, there was a, 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 with the Jesus movement, and there was a lot of things going on culturally, but I think spiritually as well in this country. And the need for church growth became like the, 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 the main call. And not only that, coupled with that, there was these um, training tools for quick evangelism. Mm-hmm. And, and the sinner's prayer became a popular thing. And there were lots of training on how to win people in the, in the checkout line and how to, you know, and learning the Romans road and, you know, highlighting, highlighting those places in the Bible so that you can get a person to make a, a quick confession and get them into church, and the megachurch movement became the desire of every preacher. And even today, I think your success is gauged by the size of your congregation and the size of your facilities and the size of your, your basketball court and the size of your college. And the, everything is, is, is about numbers and and very, I heard someone say that the American church, the Western church is about as wide as the Atlantic Ocean, but only about two inches deep. And we, we've sacrificed something, as, you, as you've said earlier, uh, Julian, and the, um, the small meeting, the small gathering was, you know, I kind of like the point that you raised that, you know, perhaps this COVID-19 um, thing 
because God's in control of everything, right? And um, I, I believe that he also does everything for the, for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, like it says in Romans 8. And um, <laughs> I, I really feel, I, well, I agree with you in the sense that perhaps this is God's way of getting us to, to refocus and, like you said, reconsider what's important. Uh, I read a book by uh, Francis Chan a while back. I think it's Letters from, Letters from the Holy Spirit. But in the beginning of the book, he uses this illustration. He says, imagine if you were on a, a, a desert island and all you had with you was the Word of God or all you had with you was the New Testament. And, um, you've, you, you know, in, how did he say it? Oh, he said, um, you, you've never been to a church before and you just have this, this, this Bible and you start reading the New Testament and you see how the church is done, its polity, its culture, its organization. Now, <laughs> open your eyes and look around at what the church is today and does it match the picture that is depicted in the word of God? And by those words, when he said those words, I was like, okay, I got to read the rest of this book. <laughs> I had to finish it. And it was a great book. But there's so many intersections of where uh, all these things make sense. Yeah, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to comment on a couple things there, there, Snitch, because I do think that in America, and I think, you know, you, you talk about the the church growth movement and so forth. And, and let me say, you know, I, I think we all uh, desire to see the church grow in that we want to see people converted. We want to see people baptized. We want to see people make professions of faith because we want people to have a relationship with, um, with Jesus Christ. But I think the, the issue that you're, that you're hitting at is, is right. This issue of church growth that, that at all costs, this, this idea of almost mass marketing the faith that um, what matters the most about our faith is not whether we're being faithful, but uh, are we doing it bigger, better, faster? And um, we Americans, we're good capitalists. We love marketing things and we love mass marketing things. And, uh, and uh, it's no surprise that we have tried to mass market religion, if you will. And um, I guess what I would say to that is, Again, uh, the pietists were not anti-church growth. I'm not anti-church growth. I want churches to grow. But I think what we have to recognize is that um, church growth is not simply getting people to pray a prayer and, um, and, and come to church and, uh, and sit in the pews and, and do nothing and be spectators and be entertained by a worship service. Um, it's far more than that. Um, Churches only grow whenever there's spiritual growth as well. Um, and uh, we need to focus again on spiritual formation in the hard work of discipleship because discipleship's not easy. Discipleship takes, it takes time. It takes investment with people. It takes, uh, takes months. It, it oftentimes takes years, but um, I, I would rather have slow, steady growth where we're creating disciples rather than just fans, if you will. Um, uh, that, that's, that to me is far, far better. And as you say, I think that um, the American church could be described in many sectors and many quarters as a mile wide, but an inch deep. 
And um, uh, what good are we doing our people as pastors if we've uh, gotten them to understand perhaps the basics of the Christian faith, and maybe not even in the basics, but we're not discipling them, and we're not teaching them how to um, have a deep abiding relationship with Christ and how to be holy, and also how to um, how to respond to false doctrine. So I think that while um, uh, while some of the impulses that came out of the church growth movement were were probably sincere, I think we all also threw some babies out with the bathwater, which was which was probably not good. And we focused on uh, numbers, as you say, um, being the measure of our success, which isn't healthy. Well, thank you so much for all of that, Julian. I really enjoyed it. It was great. Um, Snitch is going to leave a link to uh, Julian's article in the description of the podcast episode. So if y'all are interested in this topic, I found that that, uh, that article to be very uh, in-depth and well-written. So y'all can go check that out. It's not super long, but if you're interested in the topic, it'll give you a lot of names and things you can springboard off of. And uh, we certainly appreciate having you. We're going to record a second episode, so y'all come back for that. And it will be more of our usual spitballing weird political and current event topic so until next time i'm dead i'm snitch and come back for the next episode i don't know what to say Uh, (laughs) that's fine that's fine just leave it just like that we'll just leave it like that (laughs) 